Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the architecture and design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for disruption and radically changing the architecture industry through tech-first innovation. With this podcast, I am hoping to improve the industry that I am so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work with their clients and in turn, how their clients view us. It's my goal to showcase all of these experiences, good and bad. Was it the architect or the client or somewhere in between? Through shared experiences, stories, and projects, my hope is that we can improve our profession. I'm excited to have Kevin Gold, AIA, as my guest here on The Anti-Architect. Kevin is a partner and managing director at VVA, a project and cost management firm here in New York City. He has been in the business for 28 years, 16 of them with VVA. Prior to there, he worked as an architect and project manager at TPG Architects, Butler Rogers Basket, and the famous Raphael Vignoli Architects. He has worked on many prestigious projects uh, with clients such as Chase Manhattan Bank, Morgan Stanley, Jones Day, DoubleClick, Bankers Trust, and Brown Brothers Harriman. He is a registered architect and a member of the American Institute of Architects. Now, Kevin's wife hosts Tribeca Pediatrics On Call podcast, which is an outstanding podcast, and it makes me very nervous that she will be <laughs> judging me on my podcasting skills. Um, so, Kevin, thank you so much for agreeing to be here Thanks on the podcast. Um, it's an honor to, to have you. Thanks. So, our audience would love to get to know you a little bit better. Great. Um, so, why don't you tell us a little bit about growing up and um, you know where you went to school and why you wanted to be an architect? Sure. So, I, uh, I grew up on beautiful beautiful South Shore of Long Island um, in Baldwin. I went to Baldwin High School. And I was a skateboarder um, uh, growing up out there. And I started building half pipes. So after some, you know, at some point, I decided that I liked building the half pipes more than I liked skating. I loved the smell of cut wood. And I, uh, I got into um, drawing and designing. And then I realized that I really just wanted to be an architect. I didn't want to skate anymore. So I went to Lehigh University. Okay. To a four-year program. Back then, you could go to a four-year program and still get a seven-year apprenticeship and become an architect, and that's oh, what I did. Okay, great. Yeah. That, that's amazing. Um, and so you worked at various architecture firms. Yes. Um, can you tell us kind of a little bit about your experience uh, in, in working in them? Absolutely. The um, I got out of school. It was 92. Um, there were no jobs, but I knew AutoCAD. So um, I did get a job out of school doing that. So the first couple of jobs that I had were mostly related to um, just doing AutoCAD. So I went to work for Vignoli, which was a bit of a factory. Right. It was 300 people working in a huge warehouse, hot desking. Downtown? It was downtown yeah. on Van Damme. Yep. Still there, right? I believe it is. Yeah. yeah. And it was an experience. It was awesome. Um, it was definitely uh, uh, uh an eye-opening experience to understand that it takes more than one person to put together a design and um, and package to actually build something. So he had 300 people milling around. It was amazing. And after six months of working from 7 o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night, I kind of burned out and wanted to see a little bit of my early 20s. So I left there and took a series of smaller jobs. Got it. How, how involved is someone like him in the actual... 
it was amazing. Jobs. You know, he, he would get up and there was a big wall in the front of the, of the studio. And he'd get up there with a charcoal pencil on butcher paper. And he'd say, I want the building to look like this. And he'd draw big sweeping motions across. And, and it was, it was, it, they were amazing drawings. And it was, it was indicative of the feeling and the sense that he wanted the architecture to have. But after that, he left it to the 300 <laughs> people who were working around him to kind of interpret that idea into something. Then he, he'd check in and, 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 and kind of hone it and, and make it into something that actually turned into a building. Okay. But, but it definitely was a, um, an awesome, um, uh, position to be in to be able to um uh to to be able to take your ability to design and and utilize a 300 people to actually make it into a manifestation wow and did yeah. you ever have any client interaction or even no. see clients at that no. point no. no i was i was 21 years old and let me <laughs> see anyone <laughs> i mean i was I, I think i did a good job but you know whatever it was it was it was it was a good experience i got more out of it i'm sure Okay. And my, when I was 21, yeah, then they got out of me. But, but it was it was a good learning experience, and 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 I definitely enjoyed it. And then so so from there, where did you where did you move on to? So I took a series of jobs with some smaller firms in New York. Nothing to speak of. Frankly, okay. my early 20s were a bit of a blur because I was in New York and I wanted to have some fun, which right. frankly any young architect out there should take as a good recommendation. Great. Don't don't spend all of your time in the studio. And then I kind of started getting serious. I took a job at TPG when I was about 24, 25 years old. Um, and they had some really interesting projects. I worked on an Ancline 2 project, which was a lot of fun. And I really got into it. That's when my architecture really kind of started to grab me. Okay. And then after about six months, they saw that I was sleeping under my desk, working my heart out to actually turn these projects around. And they offered me a position to go help start their office in London, oh, which wow. I did. And so I went over there at 25. And because it was so short-staffed over there, I had to do work that was well beyond my ability and where I should be in my career. And, and this is kind of a reoccurring theme that's happened to me is I've learned very little from my successes, but I've learned a lot from my failures. And sure. they allowed me a, an enormous platform to fail over and over again and learn from those failures and actually be able to produce some decent work by the time I left that London office. That's great. Yeah, yeah. That, that's an amazing experience. So it's very similar to my career. I think I kind of bounced around a, a bit in the beginning. Uh, when I got to HLW, um, the, the design director there um, ended up leaving and it was sort of thrown to me like, hey, um, you know, well, you're now the guy. So right. can you just do this? Because we have deadlines coming up. And it's amazing. right? Yeah. And, and what a <laughs> gift. I mean, at the time I was thinking, who are these? Um, and maybe you were also. But I was thinking, who are these crazy people that are letting this kid yeah. who has very little, you know, has a lot of heart, but has very little knowledge or, or, or experience do yeah. this work? Yeah. And, and it, was, it was such a gift to be able to do that stuff. I advanced my career and I'm sure you did also. You know, a decade in two or three years, just based on the fact that I had to do stuff that was out of my skill set. Exactly, and before you know it, you're managing people, yeah. and you're, you know, you're, 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 you know, you have younger staff kind of working with you and, and helping you, and you you start to figure out that rapport you have with people, and you discover all of that as you go. For sure, that's a very similar philosophy we have at Mancini Duffy, where you know, if you're not quite ready for the job, that's perfect for you. You know, we kind of throw you <laughs> in, uh, whether that's out of need or really because that is the way we do it. I'm, sure. I'm not exactly sure, to be honest with you. Sure. But it is the way that I learned and funny how the same similar to you, right, is that you figure out a little bit more 
um, than than you you typically would have, and it just makes you a better designer, architect, you know, project manager, whatever it might be. Absolutely. So then, how long were you at TPG? So I was there for probably three or four, more probably closer to four years. I came back. Um, and another reoccurring theme in my in my career is I came back, I asked for a raise, and I didn't get the raise, so I moved on. And I think that <laughs> happens to a lot of younger architects. Yeah. I, I don't know why firms don't seem to want to give a raise within the firm. They you kind of have to when back in the I should say back in the nineties, you had to switch firms in order to get a raise. So I did. Yep. So I went and I did residential architecture in um, New York. Um, I wanted to be a real architect, not a corporate architect in my mind. Okay. And I wanted to build houses in the Hamptons. Okay. So I joined a residential architecture firm and I immediately got put on a apartment building in New York City, <laughs> did an apartment for Matt Lauer, and then yeah. um, got stuck doing apartments in New York City. Okay. So I did, you know, it's wealthy people, obviously, but in the Pierre Hotel and the Sherry Netherlands oh, wow. on Fifth Avenue, I ended up doing a series of very high end residential. Um, uh, apartments, never okay. got to do any houses in the Hamptons. <laughs> and then and after three years of that, I realized, and I, I don't know if you see this it, with what you're working with when you deal with residential, it's a very personal experience. Yes. The people that you're dealing with sometimes for over a year, sometimes even two years mm -hmm. become um, a part of your daily routine. And in some cases they were amazing people. And in some cases they were awful. Yeah. So um, the, the, um, I realized that residential after a while was something that I probably didn't want to do long term, and I left to go back to corporate. Yeah. So when I when I started out, um, I was an intern for a local architect in New Jersey. Um, this guy Robert W. Adler. He still uh, has a thriving practice today. And you know what I learned from that as a, that experience was that I did not want to be a residential architect. Right. You know, I didn't want to have to deal with. You know the day to day. I mean, it, it's endless, right? Yes. I mean, from the from the the kitchen cabinet hardware to the bathroom tiles to the carpet. I mean, it just doesn't end. And yes. I I always admired Rob that he could do that for such a long. And he's got a, a wonderful career and a wonderful practice, and he's yes. done amazing houses. Uh, but I just knew it was something that I couldn't. Amazing. Do. <laughs> it's it's, a, it's a, and that's an interesting point you're saying about with just the, the detail and then the kind of micro aspect of it. Yeah. You know the and look, there's something for everyone. And I know lots of architects that love doing um, residential type architecture. Yeah. They think it's it's wonderful that they get to dial down that deep into one person's life or one family's life. Um, in in my experience, when I was actually doing that much work for one person's apartment in New York City, after spending a year of my life on someone's kitchen, their living room, and their bedroom, I kind of was like, I need a, <laughs> I need to be investing in something that maybe a few more people see than just this this lady, this guy and their two kids. Yeah. So yeah. so that was just my experience though. And so I know some architects love that. And stuff. so from there, where did you go after so, so I went back to Butler Rogers Basket. Okay. Um and I started doing corporate work there. And that's really where um I became a better architect. Okay. I, I knew I wanted to do corporate. The um TPG experience and had kind of gelled up in my mind or it just felt right. And I went back and I did corporate and I started building law firms. Okay. So I started helping out with a project when I first got there for Jones Day. And then I did um, Pillsbury Winthrop and Dalen Reed and Priest mm -hmm. and Cadwallader downtown, which is another project that's coming up. And um, <laughs> the uh, it just, I, I put my heart and soul into it. Wow. I, I think I got good at it. Okay. And that was the first time I really thought I was a good architect. And so you were the architect. When did you get into the project management side of that? So, so the 
as a in an architecture firm, right? So in the architecture firm, I was I was lucky enough to work with a guy named Andon George, who gave me a lot of leeway and a lot of uh, birth to actually do what I wanted to do. I also got to work with Jonathan Butler, who was one of the name partners, who mm-hmm. gave me also an incredible amount of space to do what I wanted to do. So I was a project architect, but I was also really the project manager. They gave me a team of people to work with, who I was able to, you know, very nicely. I don't think I ever top down them. But I worked side by side with them, but I became kind of their leader in, in wow. producing the work. And then we were producing work well on time, um, quality sets of construction documents and pushing them out. And that good work kind of just made us and the people that I was working with and my team um, gave us a bit of grace in the office to do what we wanted to do. And people were like, this ain't broke right. and this is working well. So don't try to fix it and don't really try to tell Kevin what to do. So they gave me a lot of room and they paired me with some good designers who actually were designing some great things for sure. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Um, So, so then how do you, how do you make the transition to the project management side? So this I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by. Okay. So um, not easily. (laughs) It's a different thing. So um, at, at one point I was working, well, actually I shouldn't say it's a different thing. It's, it's, it is architecture. You know, I, I, I often say to people who say, well, why did you go from architecture to project management? You know, Frank Lloyd Wright didn't have a project manager building fall, Falling Waters. Project management is architecture. Mm-hmm. In, in my dream, in my old dream, and maybe even a dream that I have now, architects would take back project management and do project management. Because frankly, along with a lot of other things, lighting design, acoustical design, right. <laughs> um, all the things that make money, right. the architects have jettisoned yet another thing that makes money, which exactly. is project management. Um, and they are just doing the pure architecture. So I, I do think it is architecture in a sense. And frankly, architects are the closest things to project managers, in meaning in my field, because you touch all the different trades, meaning the engineers and the lighting designers and the acousticians and the AV folks. Yeah. So I was working on a project for Thalen Reed and Priest. I was working with VVA. They were my project managers. I hated them telling me what to do. They kept on giving me schedules. And I was like, you don't give me a schedule. I give you a schedule. <laughs> and, um, and they were trying to tell me to deliver in a certain way. And that made my ego get up. And I decided that I was going to try to do everything that they did before they would do it. So at the end of that job, they offered me a job. <laughs> and then two jobs later, I accepted that job based on the fact that once again, I asked for a raise and then I did not get <laughs> I, it. I like that theme. So, so I did, and, and I, I would say this also, the, um, and this is, um, I'm sure, and I hope has changed since, you know, 18 years ago or 17 years ago when I left architecture, architects do not make that much money. So if you're out there listening and you think that young architects, and I'm not talking about people who own firms, but if you think that young architects are out there making what lawyers make or what other people who own who have professional licenses make, they do not. That's correct. Um, it's still that way. I actually right. think it would be getting worse at this point. Right. So, yeah. so I left not because I wanted to leave architecture. I probably still love architecture more than I love project management. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I, I love project management a lot, but there's, there was very little money in it. And so so one thing that you said that's interesting is because I feel this way for sure is that architects give away bits and pieces of their profession and yeah. they have almost since the very beginning right and yeah. for for whatever reason but but more so in the last call it you know 30 40 years uh as you said lighting acoustics project management um you know even uh, frankly, specifying materials yeah. to a certain amount, or or furniture, or right? code, or code consulting, code consulting. I mean, yeah, it, it, expediting. That, right? and it, it's amazing yeah. to me. And if you don't want me throwing this in there, 
the code consulting is knowing the code is why you have your license by you i mean an architect has exactly. a license and yet the one thing that really defines them as the thing why their state that they're in has given them a license is something that they sub out to a code consultant to tell exactly. them how to do what their license should be telling and them. in the end the code consultant doesn't take on that liability right. that the architect has to right. take on yeah so 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 a philosophical question is why then and i'm springing this one on you sure. why then do you think that is like what what is it with architects where we you just know, we just it's art give it away. it's art the 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 thing that drew that drew me to architecture and the thing that i see in a lot of architects eyes when I, they talk about architecture is the art of the progression through space the art of creating you know structures the art of of creating spaces that are sympathetic to each other all of that stuff is the art of architecture project management is not the art of architecture there's no inspiration in it i mean there's inspiration in being clever there's inspiration in structure of of, of how you put something together as sure. far as a, a, a mlp but 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 the the art of architecture is what really drew them there it's what will make them drop their fees to yep. take a project because they want to do their art they want to show the world their art um, and it's the reason why they'll hold on to that piece and give away every other part of it because that's what's near and dear to their hearts. Yeah. It's also the thing that, that people in this world value um, not as much. Mm -hmm. um, and, and frankly, the architects themselves don't hold it up to as high value as they should because in the end, they'll give it away so that they can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with that. You sort of for whatever reason, the architect will put everything aside just to do that design, right? And yeah. it almost doesn't, you know, you see it all the time. Well, I can always do one more design. I can yeah. always make it a little bit better. And and the the, the practicalities of all of that just kind of yeah. fall away. And our, an artist doesn't paint because they think how much money they're going to make off the painting, or I don't, maybe some of them do. Right. But I think mo in, in, in my mind, an artist paints because they want to paint. A sculptor sculpts because they want to sculpt. An architect wants to do architecture, not because of the money, just yeah. because they want to do architecture. It's true. It's absolutely, right. it is an art form in, in that respect. Yeah. Right. So I have a connection um, to VVA. Um, you know, I wouldn't be here where I am at Mancini Duffy without Ray Arnold, who's right. one of the founders of your, of your yeah. firm. Amazing, um, man. So yeah, so Ray and I, and I'll just tell this story. So Ray and I, we met when I was at HLW International and I was working on a job out in Long Island. Uh, for HBO. Um, and I was the lead designer architect on that job. And it was kind of a crazy project because the, 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 the people that were in charge of that building actually let me do a little bit of art with that, especially yeah. in the corporate world. Right. And, and the concept of that building was to uh, take an entire data center and push it below grade. And then I, I had this idea that this be floating glass box above, which is where all the people office space would be. And I thought there is no way these guys are going to ever buy into this. It's, first of all, it's probably going to be too much money. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm basically saying you're going to bury a data center. And, but it was all in, in to respect the original building that was there uh, done by Lee Pomeroy Architects. Uh, Lee's passed, passed away a few years ago. Um, but it was all in respect to that building because they were so proud of it. Right. So we, we, I presented this thing and everybody loved it. And, and I remember Ray saying to me something like, yeah, you didn't think that was going to fly or something <laughs> like that. And I thought, oh, okay, I like this guy, Ray. He's kind of a wise ass. It'll, yes. it'll be kind of cool. And, and Ray always had the, um, Ray had the reputation of being very difficult to work with as an architect. And for whatever reason, he and I got along mm -hmm. quite well. One day he called me up and said, hey, um, I, need, I need you to go meet this guy for breakfast. He's a friend of mine, Long Island guy. Um, he's, you know, he retired from, from his firm many years ago, but he needs a guy in his 40s to come and uh, 
kind of help rebuild the place. And I was like, Ray, what are you talking about? I have no, I have no idea. So I went and I met Ralph Mancini. Wonderful. Wow. And from that moment on, you know, I, I, you know, basically fell in love with Ralph sure. and then ultimately came here. And, and, you know, when we sort of took over the firm and did exactly what Ralph was hoping for. So that's, I'm that's extremely great. grateful to, to Ray. Um, you know, I, um, I guess many of you at, you know, whether it's, you know, VVA or some of the other project management firms, um, you know, you have sort of the architects and engineers, you're, you have those professional uh, practices that have really started these firms or work at these firms. Um, however, I feel like you guys have more of a business acumen with mm -hmm. that. Um, is there some sort of retraining that goes on for an architect when you get there? How, so, how does yeah. that work? So, so when we, you know, we are architects, we are engineers, we're facilities managers, we're people who come from the construction trades. Um, we are former clients who actually ran projects who we wanted to do what we did and we ended up hiring them afterwards. Um, the, the, but when we get there, we're taught, you have to put that pencil down. You know, we know architecture, we know engineering, but we don't do architecture and we don't do engineering. What we do is we get the world out of the architects and engineers way. Mm -hmm. So that's the business aspect of it. And what, is, what does that kind of mean? It, it often means doing all the things nobody else wants to do, which is make sure that the thing's going to come in on time, mm -hmm. meaning that there actually has to be a budget and responsibility behind deliverables, that you actually have to build a job for a cost that the client wants to build it for. And, you know, and the best architects and engineers we work with and all the rest of them all the way down the line understand that if we tell them and we try to be as transparent as possible, you have to build this job for $200 a square foot construction, that we're not lying to them, right. that that's what it has to be. And if right. they design $250 a square foot, then we're going to come back to them. We're going to tell them, you need to take this, this, and this out of your job. But by the way, we told you that yeah. it was $200 a square foot. And the best and the most successful architects we work with right now have learned to take that business aspect and in, yeah. incorporate it into their design because it's better for them. Nobody's paying them to redesign exactly. because they miss the budget exactly. and they don't want to do it twice. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that business aspect is, is, is definitely something that we try to add to, but we don't try to get in people's way. We don't try to tell people how to do their craft. We just try to sew them all together into a cohesive project management structure Yep, and afford them the information they need in order to be able to do their jobs. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree, and and I, you know, I think about, you know, a good PM or owner's rep, um, you know, plays a critical part in a project, especially for an architect, for all the reasons that you 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 said. I mean, we are really not good at negotiating contracts. We are really not good at collecting money or or managing consultants right, right from that right. respect we you or or additional services that we need to go ask for and yes. i think if if more architects embraced project managers um you actually end up with a smoother project in the end and it's better for you know for the architects yeah uh, thanks ultimately you know you know one of the things and this is maybe some of the things the architects like working with us for is that we're about correct information so if there is a contract with an architect and it excludes item X and you come back for an additional service because the client has requested item X, it's nice to have a third party person there explaining to the client Absolutely. that this is something that is deserved by the architect because it was clearly spelled out and we all understood where we stood when we started the project. Yep. Having that third party there, meaning uh, having a project manager, I often think, and this even goes down to the contractors, we, pr you know, we protect the client from the world. We also protect the, the world or inform the client the way the world is and meaning what contracts we've signed, what obligations we've set up and yeah. what, what's actually due. 
So yeah. in some cases, we're not protecting the architects, but we're explaining to the client as a third party what, the, what was expected and what people are contractually bound to. And that really helps the architects because yeah. they don't have to sit there and try to get something that the client for some reason doesn't think that they deserve. And aside from a client that has a facilities department, many clients, and I'm sure you you know this, are you know the founder or CEO, right? Yeah. They're the person ultimately calling all the shots. They really have zero construction experience yes. when it comes down to this. They haven't really gone through this process, and so they don't know what ultimately what the right questions are. You know, like anything, they assume that you know they assume the worst of people. Like, yes. oh, my architect's yes. trying to yes. rip me off here. My contractor's trying to rip me off here. And you guys provide that buffer. And as you said that data and data points that say, no, this is the industry standard. This is yes. how this works. This is where this and, your money's going. And I, like, and I like that. Sometimes a client just needs to be told that no one is trying to take advantage of the situation and that this is the correct move to move forward. And hearing that from a third party is reassuring. We all want to hear that. We yep. all don't know whether we're getting a good deal. Exactly. And if we have a tertiary party telling us, yes, this is a good deal, but this is a bad deal, don't do it. Um, then, then that I think is super comforting. Comforting. Yep. So you, so you've you've been at VVA now for eighteen years. Yeah. So when you first started, how did you? What what does your career look like there? And how how did you how did you get to be manager? <laughs> I wasn't good at it. I was <laughs> I, I, when I first got there. Um, the first all the the project management world was a little bit more brutal. The the construction um, industry was a rough and ready. Um, uh, world. Um, it was it was not as structured, organized. Um, as well audited, it was it was it was out there, right? So okay. there was a lot of a lot of top downing, a lot of a lot of you know, carry a big stick and make sure everybody falls in line to make sure the project comes off and that no one's taking advantage of the project. Now that is that has definitely changed. In fact, it's changed many years ago, over a decade ago, into something that's more of a collaborative experience where people work as a team, and even in the last five to eight years, there's a positive energy. That yep. comes with a team. People are going to spend a year or two of their lives on something. It should be a fun experience. I know that's a crazy thing to say when people talk about the the hassle of having to build <laughs> something out, but it can be fun if everybody's doing it really well. It can be exciting. Yeah. Yeah. But so so we try to put that positive energy towards it. But to get back to your question, how did I learn it? You learned it on the job. Right. And I learned it like I've learned most of the other things in my life by failing. Right. You know, and it, fortunately the partners that I joined the firm under knew what they were doing. And they would find out when I failed or see when I failed. <laughs> and they would gently, you know, scream at me that <laughs> I shouldn't fail like that. And then through those experiences, I learned to become what I think is now a pretty good project manager. Okay. Yeah. And so how did you work your way up to becoming managing uh, partner? So um, hard work, um, continuing to, to succeed on my projects, taking on an enormous workload. And, and really, and this, is, this is what I try to impress on the other project man managers, you have to go out and impress upon the industry that you have value in the industry. So when I talk to some of my, young, my younger project managers, I tell them, go talk to your peers who are the architects, the engineers, and everyone in the industry. Not so much you have to create a buzz about yourself because that would be salesy and we're not salesy. Right. But you have to actually, you know, they're, they're, and we often say this and I'm going to digress for a second. There are a thousand or a hundred or 500 people in our industry who everybody kind of knows, mm -hmm. know what they're doing. Right. And then people come and they go and that, that pool changes and it's not exclusive. It's just people who are committed to learning their craft and doing it well, become part of this kind of small group of people where everybody says, yeah, nothing wrong with that guy. Never, nothing wrong with that woman. They are, they're good at what they do. Right. Right. So, so that's really how I advanced. I actually did good work. I hopefully um, 
impressed upon my peers that I was reliable in the industry. And I made myself somebody that when people thought about project management, they thought Kevin can do this job. Yeah. And then once people think that you can do this job, then you are in a very good position to be able to move up to a partnership position because you can generate your own work. Mm -hmm. Frankly, you can get your own work. Yep. And really that is the unfortunate because you know I say unfortunate that you have to bring in work in order to become a partner mm -hmm. because I don't think it's the most important thing in anyone's career. It is, it is, I don't think it is. You know, I think bringing in work is bringing in work and hard work is hard work. I'd rather be a good known for as a good project manager than as a good salesperson who brings in work. Right. But that is the thing that actually makes you a Listen, same here in, in the architecture field, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that people ask me all the time, how do I become a partner? How do I become a shareholder? And the reality is, un unless you have a talent for, you know, design, right? Or a specific, you know, let's call it a technical talent. The way if you really want to catapult yourself to the top of the line, you bring in clients and you establish yourself as being able to generate work and revenue for for the company and you will you will succeed in that respect. Now, yeah. the designer and the technical person, they don't necessarily they're not the salespeople, but they just by reputation and just by the work that they've done over and over again, they ultimately find a, a, a client following along yes. the way. Yes. And that's how they work their way up. But and, yeah. And I love that the last thing you said because that really is the long game. Exactly. The, the people who are doing sales out there, and there are people who are good at sales. I'm not good at sales. The long game is doing what you're doing so well for so long that yeah. people just call you yep. because they think you can do the work and you don't fail. Exactly. And the idea of failing on a project, the idea of not actually producing what you said you were going to produce becomes something that's an impossibility for you. Yeah. At that point, and it takes a much longer time because you have to invest a decade at getting good at something. Yeah, absolutely. It, you at that point you are it's a much more fun experience, I yep. think. Because yep. you're not going out there playing golf to get a job. You're going out there doing good work to get more work. Exactly. So. Exactly. I, I couldn't agree more. I love the architecture profession. There are so many wonderful people, so many interesting, innovative, and smart folks. And we get access to people that most never even have an opportunity to meet in person. I have worked with Bob Iger, CEO of Disney, Jamie Dimon, CEO of JPMorgan Chase, John Foley, founder of Peloton, and many more legends. There is another aspect of architects that fascinates me. How do clients view us? How do they work with us? Those that work with architects either have a wonderful experience or a pretty bad one. Let's continue to listen to the lessons they've learned. And now back to the episode. So why don't you, so this is the part where I want to kind of ask some honest questions yeah, about yeah. The, the architecture world here. Um, so you've had a hand in selecting architects. Mm -hmm. um, can you give us sort of an inside look as to how a, a project management firm such as VVA, you know, goes about, you know, Sure. Uh, selecting an architect. Yeah. What is that? Is it random? Is it, is it thoughtful? How, do, how does it work? Um, it's it def definitely not random. So, so there's, there's a competitive bid process, and it's not it's not um, specific to project management. People who are in procurement do use the same process. So what we do is we go out and we get a group of architects if we're looking for an architect who are capable of performing the work required for that specific project, 
And frankly, some architects who build hospitals might not be good at doing the residential project. Sure. And, you know, technology or law or whatever they're good at. We, we get a good group of people who have had success in the past who we think are capable of doing the work, who are not overloaded. We check to see how much work they've got on their, on their, on their plates. And then we put that list together and we send them an RFP, a request mm -hmm. for a proposal. Now, in our job is to make sure that everybody who's on that list who gets that RFP is capable of doing the work. They might not be the right people for the work, but they're capable of doing that work at a base level. Sure. At that point, we take two very large steps back because what we can't do is once we actually tell these people that they're in the competitive bid process, we can't then go and subvert the competitive bid process by telling client, I like this guy or gal more than I like the other person. Sure. Now, if they ask us, hey, what do you think of this person? We'll say they just succeeded recently on this project over here, and we'll give them the facts of the matter. Right. And we'll tell them of our experiences with that person or those team members, and we will give them the information that's required. But we will not advocate for anyone, and we can't. Right. Because why would you want to bid over and over? And we have architects bidding over and over on our projects, or on projects, I shouldn't say our projects, on the projects. Sure. Um, and we, we, if we had an agenda, then that w why would you want to bid on a job? with yeah, us. Exactly. And frankly, that's not the best thing for the client. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, you might actually find an architect who might be good one year and might just have a glitch and not, might not be great because of some internal, you know, sure. idea that's going on inside their firm. So the, the pools do move through, but so then when they do move to select an architect, we get the bids back, we level them out. We talk about how much money the architects charge. If somebody's extraordinarily high, obviously that plays into the decision-making process, but there is actually, and I think this is kind of getting to the heart of how they, the selection actually gets made, there is something called the sniff test, which is the actual interview. Mm -hmm. And in more projects than not, and frankly, most projects, we actually interview the architects. Usually it's a short list, so we go out to five architects, three of them come back based on price or the ability to respond to the RFP correctly, and then they interview. And that personality that charm, that ability to show images on a screen that align with the sensibilities of the client right. is really where a project gets won or lost. Right. That pitch is so important to come in and identify what the client is looking for and then present it in a way that they feel like you are somebody that they can work with, trust, and think that you have a design ability that is greater than the other people who are showing. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I, and being on the other side of that, you know, it's, you know, we certainly understand that. And a lot of time we spend a lot of time on proposals and we spend a lot of time kind of, you know, talking about that interview and what are we going to do for that interview? How do we separate ourselves? Ralph Mancini used to always say, you know, you've got to separate yourself somehow. So mm -hmm. if you, if you have to show up to that presentation naked, then show yeah. up to that presentation naked. Right. And, and so we have different ways that we do it here. So, um, uh, just a few more questions here. Um, have you ever seen an architect kind of fall on their face? Yes. Uh, along, along those yes. lines. Okay. Just recently, and I'm not going to say where, but. Yeah, please don't. <laughs> the, 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 there's a time to um, say no to a client. There's a time for, to talk about how a project can fail. And it's not during the pitch. <laughs> it is, it is, save it. You know, it's, it, bring it up beforehand, make it an RFI question, identify things. But if you come to a pitch, and you talk about a problem without actually immediately presenting the solution, yeah. you're not going to win that job because you're a person who identifies problems without solutions. Yeah. Now, if you are a person who comes in with six problems and four different solutions for each of those problems, mm -hmm. you might win the job. Right. But that type of positivity or a type of positivity when you're in a pitch works. Negativity in this environment does not work. Right. 
So that is the fall in the face thing that I just saw recently. Wow. Do you ever see, um, do you see architects come in with a point of view and a design sort of already baked as part of their presentation? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it does, right? Yeah. I mean, you talked about coming in and going for it. Yeah. You know, sometimes that's if they're a long shot or if, somebody, some, if they think that other architects have a better shot of getting the job, sometimes they'll, they'll come in and they'll actually give a full design. I know that there's a uh, alcohol company in the States who's, who's going to be pitching work or it's alcohol company based in Japan who's going to be pitching work in New York. Mm -hmm. They're actually asking the architects to come in with the design already. Yeah. They can actually choose the, the architect based on what the design would be. Right. So, so those are always tough on the architect side, yeah. right? Because that means we have to invest time oh and goodness. money. And, and then you, you, I'm sure you can imagine the debate that goes on on this side. What are our chances to win? How are we going to do this? And, and look, we are aware of that. And this is one <laughs> of the things that we go back and tell our clients. If they already have an architect that they're going to use, we will level that architect's bid against the industry to make sure that they get a good cost. But do not waste two or three other architects' time. <laughs> Appreciate they, that. They, well, it's, it, it costs somewhere between five dollars and $15,000 for you to bid a job yeah. by our reckoning. Yep. Right? About so if right. we know you're not going to win and we actually put, let this out to bid, we've just wasted, and wasted is probably the kindest way of describing the word, we've wasted five dollars to $15,000 of your money. Yep. So why would we do that? And, and so we just explained to the client that we can actually do it with another way, which if, if it's a foregone conclusion, do not use the competitive bid process in that, in that Yeah, case. And, if, and if it's not a foregone conclusion and we know we're a long shot, there's a lot of times where we think, all right, well, here's our shot. Let's yeah. go in and let's let's blow them away. And, you know, we've actually won some pretty big clients yeah. based on that. This, you know, and they've said to us afterward, we had absolutely no intention of hiring you, That's but you, you came yeah. in and you blew us away and we we're so impressed. I've, I've seen it work too. Yeah. A, very, a very large social media company picked... What I thought was going to be an uh, impossibility for one of their first for their first architectural assignments. <laughs> so, a couple more questions. Um, you know how how much of a difference uh, is it when a client is super design focused mm -hmm. versus a client that is budget and schedule focused? So, so budget and schedule are easy um, because if you have a budget, you drive the project to that budget. If you have a schedule, you inform the entire team and structure the, the, the work so that you can actually deliver it to that schedule. Now, if a client is design focused, that is a variable that is not quantifiable. So the architect could come in and hit it out of the had it out of the park with their first design and the design focused client could say, I love it, let's keep going. They could also say, I hate it, and you could be on round eight of a design if the architect keeps missing or if the client keeps not lining up with the architect's sensibilities. And that can blow a schedule. Right. You know, maybe it won't blow the budget, but it'll definitely push the project out. So when a client is super design focused, we definitely have to sit there, make sure the architect is investing their time and understanding what the what the client wants, having the client talk about what they've seen in the past, which they like, and then frankly making sure the architect is listening to yeah. what the client wants. If you get an architect who wants to do what they want to do, with a client who doesn't want to do what that architect wants to do, that is the, that is a, 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 a for disaster. it is a disaster. Yeah. yeah. So, so you either have to flip out the architect or you have to make sure that the client is realigning their head with the possibility for their design. Right. In general, what's your opinion on our architects? Good listeners? No. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think I, I'll say this. I think the most successful ones I in agree, New York <laughs> are, are, they are, mm -hmm. you know, if you look at the top 10 architecture firms in New York, and frankly, that's not everybody in each of these firms. Right. And there's no secret there. Some of these firms have 10, 20, hundred people in them. Mm -hmm. You could have 50 good listeners and 50 bad listeners right. in, that, in that firm. So it's not the firms in particular, but the best architects in New York, the people who are getting the work are listening. Mm -hmm. They're listening. And, and that is getting them 
the reputation in the industry as somebody who's easy to work with. And in 2021, curmudgeonly architect who has you know, a passion for architecture, a fantastic designer, but you have to deal with this eccentric personality or rough personality yep. or awful personality, that doesn't fly. Doesn't fly, yeah. Right. No, I, so, I, I, I totally agree. Um, so <clears throat> I guess, you know, a couple more here. Uh, just in general, how has COVID affected you know, your business and, and, uh, I know how it's affected our business. Yeah. Um, I think it's coming back right now, yes. but just in what, what's your feelings on COVID? So Joe, in short, we were down 50, you know, this last year we were down 50% of what we, our normal volume, mm -hmm. you know, we were able to keep all, you know, almost all of our people, we did let a couple of people go, but, um, we were able to come through better than our peers, but okay. better than our peers in COVID is still awful. Mm. So, and I think that's industry wide. If you yeah. talk to the architects or the engineers, nobody did very well this year. Yeah. Um, or last year and coming to this year, it is starting to get better. With all of that, it was a very exciting time. And the reason is, is because a lot of the concepts and ideas in architecture and in engineering and in conservation or sustainability or in health in the, in the office place have been advanced by a decade. Yeah. Things that people would not consider before are, are baseline ideas right now. The idea of brand identity, of people working from home and having a high impact um, experience in the workplace when they get there, as opposed to thinking of the workplace as their desk, a, you know, a bummer of a conference room next to them, and maybe a pantry with some food in it. Now, when they get there, they, people want the work experience to say, this is the company that I work for. This is why I think it's amazing. And you're only going to be here two days a week. So I need to impress that upon you immediately. So when you go back home and work the other three days of the week, you still feel like you belong to an organization. That's just one small example of, of some of the ideas that are just floating out there. It's, oh, it's, I, I it's think phenomenal. you're spot on. I yeah. really do. I, I think as much as, you know, same thing, we were down, you know, 30% overall. Our goal was to keep as many employees as we could. And we've, we've gotten through that. And now we're, you know, we're getting ready to hire again. Yeah. So, you know, for us, it's... It was a good time to reflect back as to where we were, restructure a bit, but we couldn't be more excited about what the future holds, especially in the office environment, because it is now ripe for change and ripe for new ideas, right? And we're not all going to just march along with the same the same old ideas that any old architecture firm could design yeah. as, as, as we go. So... Um, what do you think the opportunities for technology are uh, in in this business, in, in both your side, on the PM side, and then also on the design side? So there's 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 kind of two, or more than two, but I'll talk to two technologies. One is in the construction world, the ability to actually visualize or view a job site um, while it's actually in construction using um, uh, video documentation where clients can actually walk through a job site and actually see what's going on when they're sitting in California and stop almost like you do with Google Maps, stop yep. and then turn and walk down this corridor and look yep. has made um, a huge difference. The, the ability to not have to go to the job site expands the ability for people to actually show the work off and get feedback in a more timely basis and actually do it in a way that's documentable over the long haul. So when yeah. somebody says this was done on this date, you can go back to the record and say, no, it was not done. I know that was a little bit techy, but yeah, no, the- but the, the other portion of it is seeing our clients, the, the disaster recovery aspect of work, and this kind of bleeds down through everything I'm about to say, is go home and work from your kitchen table. 
So where there used to be these backup generators, and they're still required in some industries. I'm not saying it's completely gone. But for many industries, the idea of the fact that they needed a backup generator, they needed a backup air conditioning 24-7, ability to run the building, when they realized that there's another opportunity for people to literally just go home and work from their, their, their kitchen tables, that's changed the technology inside the offices. It's forced people to go to a laptop-based desk experience. Yep. And because it's a laptop-based desk experience, the VC platforms all exist inside of that laptop, which has changed the conference room scenario. Because even when people are in conference rooms now, they still have their laptops open. Yep. They're still doing the VC from their laptop in a conference, sitting across from somebody else who's in the same conference with them because the VC platforms allow people to view documentation and imagery that you can't even see if you're sitting in the same room you know, without the laptop. Yeah, very, very, very strong points. Um, so bringing it kind of all back around, um, last question, uh, uh, if you had to do it all differently, yeah. uh, as far as your career goes, what, what might uh, change? I, I, you know, I try not to, I try not to second, <laughs> second guess it. Um, the, the, um, I don't know. Uh, I think I would have, um, you know what? I, I don't even know the answer to that. I, I actually I actually think I probably would have beat myself up less than I did. I think I think in my career when I failed at something or I perceived that I failed at something or I don't think I gave as much of an effort as I should have, I would go home and let it eat me up. Right. And and you know scenarios or failures in my career, I would take too much more. Um, seriously than my peers did or the people around me even thought I needed to. So I think I would have given myself a pass. And I'd say that to young architects and young project managers. The world doesn't think you're as awful as you think you are when you actually screw you something up. Yeah. Give yourself a little bit of a break. Take responsibility, but don't let it eat you up inside. And I did that a little bit in my early career. Like, so, so step off yourself. That's what I, that's <laughs> what I would have changed. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I, I really, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It was really, really fun.